This episode is brought to you through the generous donation of a listener, Oliver. Thanks to listeners like Oliver, we're able to keep this podcast on air and free for everybody. So thank you, Oliver. And now, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Before we get underway, I'd like to apologize for this being a little bit late. My power supply on my computer died. And as some of you may know, power supplies, when they go, they don't want to go alone. And so it took me a little while to get my computer put back together. But this actually gave me some time to think about the direction of the podcast and a few things that I set aside because I was pushing hard on certain narrative formats. So we're going to do a little bit of cleaning up here in this episode, and we're going to start focusing more heavily on the cultural impact of Roman Britannia. Uh, We will get back into the great man narrative format, but for a little bit, we're going to talk about what it was like living in Rome and then a few events that were occurring at the time. That's because I want to be able to give you a firm mindset of what life was like for these people. Otherwise, I'm just telling you stories about people, but they're not really real to you. So let's get this underway. To begin with, I want to talk about what a nightmare Roman occupation was, since that's probably been lost, actually, in the story. I actually wouldn't be surprised if most of the people listening thought that the effect that the Romans had upon the Britons wasn't really that terrible. I can imagine a few of you are thinking, well, they get togas and wine and heated floors and all this, uh, this cool stuff, tiled roofs. I mean, sure, they have to pay for their taxes and they have to pay those to the Romans and they have additional debts because the togas aren't free. But, you know, walk it off, Britons. You should see what my credit card bill looks like. But I think that that kind of approach would be a mistake. And before you start shouting nativist bias at me, which is something I'm almost certainly guilty of, incidentally, let me first try to explain my reasoning for why I think the Roman conquest and occupation would have been an absolute nightmare for the early Britons. To do this, let's talk about the conquest period, which stretches from Claudius's first invasion, complete with elephants, to the mid-80s AD. During that period, even if we're conservative, there were between 100,000 and 250,000 Britons that were killed by the Romans. And keep in mind that the population of the whole of Britannia at this time was probably less than 2 million. So it could be that more than 1 in 10 were killed. And that doesn't even take into account the number of people injured, maimed, or enslaved. And if you were lucky enough to avoid being killed or crippled during the conquest and were a young male, there was a good chance that the Romans would recruit you, and I use that term loosely, and put you in a unit serving in the Danube or elsewhere. And actually, the recruiting numbers in Britannia were higher on average than the other Roman provinces. Now, this makes a little bit of sense from the Roman perspective. I mean, if you've got people who are able to fight in Britannia, and they clearly rather enjoy fighting, Well, the best thing to do would be to get them the hell out of Britannia and have them fight for Rome elsewhere. But from the perspective of the Britons, not only had the population been decimated, but a large percentage of the surviving population had been crippled, and the remaining able-bodied men were now serving in Roman battles far away, either to be gone for an enormously long period of time, or to come back crippled, or to die in the battlefield. This would have been devastating for the common Briton. After all, unless you were in the upper strata of society, you lived hand to mouth. So it's quite possible that a house could go from having a large number of strong backs at work in the field to only having the hungry mouths of the infirm and elderly. 
since the strong had already been killed, maimed, or conscripted. I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that famine would have followed. And there are some records that indicate that famine was a real problem in the early days of the province. After all, the soldiers would forage for supplies, meaning they would seize food stocks whenever they wanted it. And so I think it's actually unlikely that there wasn't famine and starvation during this period. But all the stuff that I've been talking about doesn't even take into account the personal horror of those who were left alive and what they must suffer through. The soldiers were often instructed to terrorize the population to prevent any potential rebellion. So there was certainly looting and burning. And that was amplified under Suetonius and Agricola, who we will talk about soon. After all, Tacitus regularly used the word terror when talking about Agricola's campaigns. So they would terrorize the population, destroy homes, destroy crops, and generally act like monsters. And we can be reasonably sure that they not only engaged in terror tactics, but they actually enjoyed them. I mean, don't forget that there was a mutiny of one of the legions in Britannia when they grew tired of their peace-loving governor, and they forced a replacement so that they can get back to looting and pillaging. When you think about it, it makes a little bit of sense. There are a few get-rich-quick schemes more effective than being part of a military unit looting a disarmed population. And if you have sadistic members in your cohort, you can imagine what would happen next. If you want examples of what the Roman soldiers were capable of, look no farther than how they treated Boudicca and her daughters. If noble women and virgins could be treated that way, how do you think that the farmer's daughter would fare? And speaking of the children of noble families, the Romans were fond of taking noble kids as hostages. These hostages ensured the cooperation of the nobles and resulted in the creation of a potential Roman-educated puppet leader, just in case the nobles got out of hand. And incidentally, the suffering we've been talking about wasn't equally spread out in the island. There were regions, such as some of the territories in the south, that were much more likely to have dead, wounded, conscripted, or enslaved family members, and be subject to the brutality of the soldiers. So let's imagine that you're a Briton from a southern resisting tribe, and you've managed to survive the war. You've lost family members in battle with the legions. Some of your family have been maimed. Others have been enslaved or conscripted. Those left behind are either old or very young, or probably terribly scarred by the Romans, not just physically, but probably also emotionally. I mean, who wouldn't be? But despite losing almost everyone who could work in the fields, not to mention losing your ox to the raids, you managed to find a way to tend your field. Usually you could rely on your extended family, who lived nearby to help in a bad harvest, but everyone's in the same situation as you. So you managed to get through the hungry months of summer, and finally reach autumn. And then the Roman tax collector comes. He wants you to pay for the Roman legions. Pay for what? Haven't you paid enough already? You've lost everything. But he insists that you have to pay for the Roman peace that the emperor has generously brought you. And for that, he requires coin. But there isn't any coin to give. Don't worry, he says. You aren't the only family in the area to like coin. He says he likes you, and that as a favor, he'll just take your grain instead, and he won't report to the legions that you refuse to pay your taxes. So what do you do now? Do you pay him? 
and go hungry? Or do you keep it and suffer at the hands of the legions? Okay, maybe that's an extreme hypothetical. I mean, what about the Britons who didn't fight back? The ones like Cartamandoa and Prasutagus, who agreed to Roman domination and became client kingdoms. I mean, while the life of, of a Briton living in a subdued rebel territory was brutal, it must have been better for the friendly territories, right? Well, a lot of the hardships, such as maiming, decimation, and terrorizing the population, would have either been absent or at least lessened in those areas. So there were a few benefits. But they are also short-term benefits. See, the problem there is that the rulers of the client kingdoms assumed that if they were well-behaved and paid their taxes, they could keep their crowns and pass them on to their children, and so that they wouldn't have to worry about the suffering and brutality that occurred when other tribes were annexed. Well, we don't have any evidence of a crown passing in a client kingdom situation. Rather, when the ruler of a client kingdom died, the kingdom was annexed often with military force. Sure, they probably didn't suffer through the same horrors of the territories that fought against Rome, such as the Salures, the Ordovices, the Decianglae, which actually held the territory where I'm from, the Catovolani, and later the Iceni and others. But life wasn't all wine and togas for them. Oh, and speaking of the togas and wines and those wonderful heated floors that we talked about a few episodes ago, they weren't available except to a select few. The political and economic power of Britannia was crushed by Rome, and it would be generations before the population at large would see any of the vaunted benefits of being part of the empire. Okay, sure. There is some nativist bias at play here. I'll be the first to admit it. After all, some of the governors weren't bent on ruling through terror, and Agricola did calm down after a little while. But still, I think there's a tendency to assume that being annexed by the empire was a good thing, and that assumption ignores a lot of the brutality that occurred during the conquest and occupation. So enough of that. Let's get back to our story. So last episode, for narrative purposes, I completed the tale of Venutius and the Brigante, with Venutius' defeat at the hands of Petilius. However, I skipped over a few events that occurred in Britannia in order to get there which might have given the impression that the Brigante simply rolled over and that nothing interesting really happened in the interim. So let's back up a little bit and catch you up and get to some of the gritty details. So Boudicca has been defeated. Suetonius has been recalled. And there were a couple cuddly governors who healed a lot of old wounds in Britannia, but were hated by the legions. And then there was the year of the four emperors, which of course involved Vespasian. Do you remember Vespasian? I won't blame you if you don't. It's been a while since we've talked about him, but Vespasian did play a role in the shaping of Britannia. Remember that battle at the river between Aulus Plautius' legions and the forces of Caractacus and Togodomnus? Really the first major battle in the Claudian invasion? The one where the Britons were distracted by the German auxiliary attack on their flank, and then there was an assault across the river by the second legion. Well, the legate of that legion was Vespasian. So let's talk about the year of the four emperors and how Vespasian became emperor. This might get confusing, but I'll do my best to keep it simple. So you've got the year of the four emperors, and this was actually somewhat of an issue for the Romans of Britannia. Not only because of the opportunistic rebellion of the Brigante led by Venutius, but also because it was a civil war, and you have quite a few legions operating on the island. 
Well, who would they support? Who would the governor support? And what about the procurator? Are you seeing how this could quickly turn into a total mess? When you have an indigenous population that is prone to infighting, the last thing you want is your military to also be fighting amongst itself. But these things sometimes happen. And so Rome was in the middle of a civil war. Who would the Romans and Britannia support? Well, at the beginning, most of Britannia sided with Vitellius, the governor of Germania. There's a chance that Vitellius used the legion's dislike of Trebilius Maximus, the peace-loving governor at the time, and he probably indicated to the legions that under his rule, they could get back to looting and fighting and all the stuff that they loved to do. But there's always a black sheep in the family, and in this family, it was the 14th. The 14th legion was incorporated into Otho's army entirely. Otho was Vitellius's rival. And around this same time, there was a mutiny against the governor in Britannia, because he was too much of a peacenik. So you have a number of legions that are supporting Vitellius, the 14th fighting for Otho, and no governor in Britannia thanks to a mutiny. Roman peace, right? Anyway, so Vitellius defeated Otho in short order, and returned the 14th to Britannia, along with a new governor of his choosing, Bolanus, who we spoke about last week. Obviously, Vitellius wasn't overly trusting of the 14th, but what other choice did he have? So Vitellius won, right? Well, not quite. Because Vespasian now enters the fray. You didn't think this would end easily, did you? So Vespasian knew that the governor was picked by his rival, and most of the legions were friendly to his rival as well. So he made a concerted effort to sway the 14th to his cause, being that they were never pro-Vitellius. And he probably also worked pretty hard on the second legion, since it was his former legion. I'm sure he pushed for the support of all the legions in Britannia, since he fought with them against the Britons. I'm just guessing that he really turned the screws on the second. So time passed, and things were getting pretty nasty, and there's a lot of stuff that was happening in Rome that's interesting, but it really isn't pertinent to our story. Here's where it is pertinent. It's Vitellius sent to his ally, Governor Bolanus, for reinforcements. And Bolanus refused, arguing that he had his own problems in Britannia. And that was certainly true. I mean, there was war in Brigantium and in the West. So Vitellius, abandoned and outmatched, was defeated by Vespasian, who became emperor. Okay, how many of you did I lose in that? Um, really, here's the basics of what you need to know. The new emperor, Vespasian, didn't trust anyone in Britannia because every single one of them had supported one of his rivals at one point or another during that year. So there's a serious problem with disunity. It seems that the 2nd and 14th legions were generally pro-Vespasian, but the 9th and the 20th, eh, not so much. And as a result of this, Vespasian paid a great deal of attention to military operations in Britannia. After all, if he kept the legions fighting and looting, they'd be too tired and rich to conspire against him. There was also a good amount of shuffling going on, which would also prevent potential conspiracies. The 14th were pulled out of Britannia, never to return again, and a new legion was sent to replace them. In 70 AD, the 20th legion who was not enthusiastic about Vespasian's ascension and had recently mutinied against Bolanus, uh, was placed under the command of a man that Vespasian trusted, Agricola. And Governor Bolanus, who was installed as governor by Vespasian's rival, was replaced in 71 AD by Quintus Petilius Cerealis. So do you remember Petilius Cerealis? 
We've talked about him in earlier episodes. He was the legate of the Ninth Legion, who was thoroughly trounced by Boudicca's army. The one who tucked tail and ran back to his fort as fast as his horse could carry him. Well, when Petilius took over, the north, that is the territory of Brigantium, was in total revolt and operating under King Venutius. And the Silures and Ordovices were also resisting Roman rule in the west. In fact, Tacitus wrote of how the Silures were unmoved by Roman clemency or Roman cruelty. You could use the carrot, you could use the stick, it really didn't matter. They simply would not accept Pax Romana no matter what the legions would do. But things in the empire were stabilizing following the Civil War, and as a result, Petilius had the resources to focus more heavily upon these territories. Moreover, it was an excellent opportunity for the 9th and 20th legions to prove their loyalty to the emperor, something that they would have wanted to do, unless they were not interested in living very long. And of course, it was a great opportunity to get rich through looting, which couldn't have hurt Vespasian's chances of gaining the loyalty of the soldiers. So Petilius and the legions went north. We don't know what happened, but during his governorship, Petilius managed to oust Venutius from his throne. It might have been as simple as a treaty, but that's unlikely. Or perhaps it involved the capture of his family members, and there was a hostage situation. After all, it wouldn't be the first time his family had been captured. Or maybe there was a battle in which he lost and he himself was captured. Or maybe everything fell apart when the oponym at Stanwyck was destroyed. We just don't know. But whatever happened, Petilius managed to remove Venutius from the throne that he had fought for decades to acquire. And he only held it for a few years. Ah, Venutius. You probably should have just contented yourself on being a house husband rather than constantly trying to oust your wife. I can't imagine those few years in command were worth around two decades of conflict. I wonder if Petilius thought that the fall of Venutius would bring an end to the fighting. If he did, he was mistaken. Brigantium, which was militarized and bellicose, was still in rebellion. After all, it really wasn't a unified nation, but more like a loose confederation. But at least the governor can take solace in the fact he was able to remove their unifying figurehead, and the region likely fragmented as a result. And from this point in our story, Venutius vanishes into history. In 74 AD, Petilius was recalled to Rome and replaced by Sextus Julius Frontinus. Sextus was focused primarily upon the rebellious tribes in what would become Wales, chief among them the Silures. So the new governor was an experienced military leader who conducted military operations in the Rhineland, and he used the knowledge gained in those operations against the rebelling Silures. Forts and archaeological finds indicate that there was a massive concentration of Roman force in the area during his reign, and that the Silures were quickly brought down, as were their neighbors, the Demete. In fact, when Julius Agricola took over as governor in 78, only North Wales and Northern Britannia were an issue. The remainder of the island had been subdued by his predecessors. Now, Agricola is someone that we've spoken about before in prior podcasts. This is starting to sound like a reunion episode, isn't it? Anyway, so Agricola was present at the final battle of Boudicca, the one where Suetonius was victorious. But more importantly, he was also the father-in-law of Tacitus, one of our primary sources of information of this period. So Agricola used the opportunity created by his predecessor to complete the domination of the Welsh territories. 
He didn't have to worry about the South, after all, and so he was free to concentrate on Northern Wales. And as always, the weak spot of Northern Wales was the Isle of Mona, or Innes Mon, known to the Welsh, or known today as Anglesey. You might remember that this was the same island that had its sacred groves cut down by Suetonius shortly before Boudicca's rebellion. So Agricola arrived with massive Roman forces, crossed the small channel between Britannia and Anglesey, and took the territory. With their religious and agricultural center in Roman hands, the Ordovices and Decciangle, the Britons in northern Wales, were brought to heel fairly soon following that defeat. But ultimately, completing the conquest of Wales was a distraction from Agricola's true mission, the conquest of northern Britannia. Okay, I think that's actually a pretty good place for us to stop. We've got the armies marching north, and next time we can cover that, and we might get as far as the construction of Hadrian's Wall. Maybe we can get to the Antonine Wall, who knows? Before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about membership. I would really appreciate it if you became a member. Uh, membership is super cheap. It's $2.99 a month. And for that, you're getting an excellent deal. You're looking at over two hours a month of material. And if enough people become members, maybe I'll just do this full time. In which case, you know, you're going to be getting probably episodes every other day at that point because, you know, I'll just be going berserk talking into my little microphone. But it's a great deal, especially if you're from the UK. I mean, two ninety nine in US dollars, that's got to be what, like tuppence? So if you want to join as a member, please head over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and click on show your support. I would really appreciate the help. And of course, I'll be doing everything I can to make sure that members will get the best bang for their buck. I'll be working hard to produce a quality product here, but I'll also be doing little extras that are for members, maybe extra podcasts regarding member questions or something like that. And if you're so inclined and you want to contribute more, there are options for that as well. So please go check it out. And thank you very much for your help on this. If you want to go and join the conversation on Facebook, you can head over to facebook.com slash British History, or you can go and join the conversation at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.